Ephesians 4. We're going to be working through all of our points fairly succinctly so we can kind of look at some of the scriptures that will establish our thoughts around this third application of the sixth frame in the interpreter's house. Ephesians 4 is going to be just a starting text as I want to walk through points one through three a little bit more systematically tonight until we come to point points number two and three and largely three as we are as I stated on our third application third evaluation of the sixth frame called for us a man in an iron cage the man in the iron cage which um which Mr. Bunyan in his writings extracted from the scriptures. You might know where they are. You may not. We're going to look at it tonight and, and kind of understand why he would use this particular optic to, um, to speak to the trouble that uh, this individual in the cages in. We're going to do a bit of a work. But in Ephesians chapter four, we've been here before, but I just want you to look at it because it would actually give us an idea of what is meant by uh, the dark room of the heart, the dark room of the heart. Actually, all of these metaphors, these analogies or allegories are speaking to the nature of the kingdom of God, which is centrally, centrally a heart matter. That's, that probably is what we need to be learning here, too, with regards to a person we are assigning to reprobation and uh, hardness of heart, as he even stated, that the matters of a relationship with God are not exclusively, but largely a matter of the what? The heart. All right. This is where Christ would warn us at all times. This is where the Old Testament would lay out the appeal to human beings, people created in the Imago Dei, uh, guard, care for, keep, um, treasure, your heart for out of it are all the issues of life. That's Proverbs 4.23, something to meditate on and learn. And so the heart is really the central realm of reality between the people of God and God. And then, therefore, external manifestations and expressions of our life are to be a reflection of what's going on in our heart. It is very possible, you know this, that one could behave in a way of outward duty because this man in the cage will tell us he behaved in a way of outward duty that made everyone around him believe that he was a good and prospering and fruitful Christian. But in reality, we have discovered that he is not. And this is what we want to work through, understanding how is it that one can take on a form of godliness with um, with the capacity of passing the instruction or inspection, rather, of of other Christians, because you can. We know this with whom? Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot had no no marks, no uh, demerits. No, there were no warnings, no, no yellow marks in his, uh, you know, by a monthly or every six months evaluation. As he hung out with the other apostles or disciples at that time, none of them even remotely were suspicious of Judas Iscariot. So he fit the bill of a person who could take on external expressions of a Christian faith to pass by everyone but God himself. And, and ultimately, the parables 
are what are warning us about this. I'll give you one just off the top of my head, the parable of the wedding feast and the man that goes into the wedding, which is an eschatological conclusion without a wedding garment on. You guys remember that. You can read that in Matthew's gospel. And the sort of uh, obvious thing in that account is that everyone has on a wedding garment but him. And so the idea is that he got past everybody down here in the uh, thoroughfare and the byways and highways. But when it came time to meet the king, because it was the king who raised the question, how did he get in here without a wedding garment? And, and you and I would say that was an absurd thing because everybody would have caught him at the door without a wedding garment on. Right. Hey, you can't even come in here without one on, you know. We could go into multiple categories of speculation around that only to say this. The analogy was designed to help you and I know that men and women can fool other men and women around what it means to be a professor in the faith. Okay, Um, but on the last day, everything will be made manifest. And sometimes uh, things are made manifest now, but certainly on the last day, everything will be made manifest. And I, I think the warning for the believer, the true believer, is don't play games with God so that on the last day, you know, you and I might be one of those people where God say, I never knew you. Because this is the, if there's a benefit to this man's struggle. Now, remember, this is an allegory. This is not a historical event. It's an allegory. So what Christian is getting is a warning of what could be his case if he's not careful in negotiating his walk of faith in a real way. Right. Um, But you and I probably don't know one person in our life that has said, hey, I am of such a nature that I am no more a Christian. I am no more uh, a professor of the faith. I, uh, I, I knew God once, but now I don't. Um, I had God's spirit about me, but now I don't. I pushed God away, as we already learned, and, and I tempted the devil, and the devil has now come, and I am without the capacity of repenting, which is what we've been learning, right? We've been learning this man is laying out very vividly and comprehensively his own spiritual demise and condition. He's trapped in the cage of non-repentance. That's the cage he's trapped in. And it's a cage in his heart and it's a cage in his conscience, which is really the word. So when Paul speaks in Ephesians 4, 17 to the Christians at Ephesus, what he said here in this text is, hey, Make sure that you understand that you are no longer what you used to be. You read Acts chapter 18 and 19 carefully. It was where uh, the apostles did ministry in the city of Ephesus and the spirit of God did a mighty work there. And if you recall, one of the things that occurred when the work of the gospel was actually established, albeit on a, a lot of persecution against Paul and his team. But when the gospel was established in Ephesus, You guys recall that there was such a mighty movement that all of the people took all of their books, all of their witchcrafts, all of their sources, all of their idols and went into the middle of the city and burned them all up. That was a real clear indicator that a real work of grace was taking place. 
And out of that came two and a half years of ministry for Paul and then the letter to the Ephesians, which is a wonderful book, another small treatise on the nature of the gospel and the grace of God in Christ to people. Here's what he says. This is an imperative. This I say, therefore, and this is coming from the whole of the fourth chapter, which is a beautiful chapter on the oneness of God, one God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one people of God. And that the exhortation in verse 14 and 15 is that we are to no longer be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the cunning slate of men who lay in wait to deceive, but rather we are to speak the truth and love, having grown up into Christ in all things. That exhortation now leads to this. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, which is uh, that that clause, the second clause testify in the Lord means that he's being very earnest and legally serious with the church at Ephesus, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk your conduct, your profession, your your way of life in the vanity of their mind. So the mind, as we've talked about before, is in the regions of the heart, right? Because the heart is the inner man. You can't disconnect the mind from the heart. The heart in the Bible is never just one monolithic concept. It's not like just your emotional mechanism. The heart constitutes at least three critical faculties as that which expresses who we are, the mind, the emotions, and the volition. This is something you always want to make sure. And in our Hebrew concept of it, which operates out of triads, that's very true. The heart, therefore, is the mind, where we think, ration, reason, where we assess, draw conclusions. And then the heart also is where our emotional investment is tied into what we are thinking, doing, saying, so that between the mind and the heart of the thinking and the emotions, we have the uh, the impetus or what is called the drive to act. And actions are what? Volitional. So it's the mind, the emotions and the volition or the will that's at the center of what it means to be a person who is operating out of the heart. So this is what Jesus says out of the heart proceeded all manner of behavior. Right. And so it's important for you and I to know that that is the real rim that you and I should be caring for. And so he says in verse 18, these words that will circumscribe uh, the condition of the man before we go into our text even further. Having the understanding what? Right. That's the mind now. Right. Having the understanding darkened means that this individual no longer is benefiting from the light of God's knowledge. That's why having your outline point sub point A, look at sub point A, the absence of the what? Gospel light. So I want you to capture that as I walk through it. This man in the cage no longer benefits from the blessing of the illuminating work of the light of the gospel. Think about this like this, just in case, you know, you're not quite with me as of yet. Think about walking in darkness, ignorance. That's a really big synonym for um, for ignorance and a lacking understanding, uh, walking in darkness. And then God comes along and tells you uh, the right way to go. The lights are on. Uh, there is a substantially different condition and atmosphere in your mind now because God is now sharing with you how to get out of your predicament, how to overcome your situation. He's even actually showing you what your situation is because prior to the light of the gospel, 
at the levels in which it matters, we don't even understand our predicament. Would you agree with that? But once the lights are cut on, one of the fundamental things that the gospel will do is teach you that you are a what? And then point you to the successful exit for that sinful condition in the righteousness of Christ. That's great light. Wouldn't you consider that? That's a beautiful thing when God says, hey, hey, you're going the wrong way. This is the way to go. But when once you enter on that path and you begin to take advantage of the light of the gospel in a way in which you neglect its warnings, which is really what's the big lesson here. Do not neglect the warnings of scripture. Then over time, the light of that gospel diminishes on your side of the equation. And this would be true uh, if we were to cut the lights out in here and just sat in the darkness for about 10 minutes. And you guys know this, cut the lights back on and then it is brilliantly light, wouldn't it be? Your, 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 your eyes have to adjust to the brightness of the light. Well, that's what happens when the gospel first comes to a man or a woman in terms of informing them of who God is and who we are <clears throat> and God. You are awakened. I talked to you guys about being the what kind of sinner? Awakened sinner. Awakened. And then you can be informed as an awakened sinner, but not necessarily regenerated because... Uh, what we are describing under point number one, the, the dark room of the heart, as Jesus taught it in Matthew six. I'm not going to go back over it. You would have to get our last study because we talked through having a single eye versus an eye that is double minded or given to shiftiness. You guys remember that? The single eye concept is the eye that's fixed on the object that allows the whole body to follow it in a proper direction. You guys remember that? That's what he means when he says, if your eye be single, then the whole body is full of light. But if your eye, if your eye be dark, how great is that darkness? He's talking, singularity means focus. It means commitment. Singularity is the idea of actually knowing where the North Star is and staying on point with the North Star. So you get where you are going. And when he uses the metaphor of the eye, this is uh, what Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 speaks about as well. Or verse 17, rather, the eyes of our understanding being enlightened that we might know him and the riches of the possessions of his grace. So a true believer is in a state where their eyes are enlightened at the deep regenerative level. But a person can be an individual who acquires quite a bit of a knowledge of God and still not be regenerated, even reach the level of becoming one of God's apostles like Judas and yet be in darkness. If you were to go back to the um, Psalms and you read about Judas, one of the curses that was on him was that let his let his lamp go out, let him walk in darkness, let his path be slippery, let him enter into the curses of darkness. That's what the Psalms said about Judas. And really, it was a consequence of him neglecting the light that he had. If that makes sense, to whom much is given, much is what? So one of the areas in which you want, and I want to talk this through is the idea that when people inform you, give you information about the ways of God, you only have a season for those realities to benefit you. You only have a season. This is why Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. If any man follow me, he will never walk in darkness. And then he said it in chapter nine, you better walk in the light while it is day. 
because the night is coming when no man can work. So the scriptures always gives this idea that Jesus is not going to be there always. Truth is not going to always be with you. You and I as human beings have opportunities to be near truth when it's available. Remember what Isaiah said in Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he what? May be found. Call upon him while he is what? Near. Because he's not always near and he won't always be found. as Proverbs 1 tells us. So for you and I, the matter of salvation is what? Time sensitive. Would you agree with that? It's time sensitive. So this is what he means by, uh, can you stay at Ephesians 4 verse 18, please, or 17, whichever one it was, because I, I was just doing commentary. Uh, thank you. Having the understanding darkened and because of it, we are alienated from the what? Right. So the metaphor of the light is a synonym for God. God is what? Light. And there's no darkness in him at all. And so when a person is truly walking in the right way with God, they are walking in the what? Light. And therefore they're called children of what? Light. That's your Bible. And so it's God's prerogative that as we walk with him, we become light bearers so other people can see the pathway as well. But if you and I are walking in darkness, how can we help other people? We cannot, right? And so Paul says to us, be careful that you don't walk like you used to before you were in your unsafe state. Being alienated from the life of God through the what? Ignorance that is in them because of the what? Right. Now, all of those categories are beautiful because it's talking about the mind and the heart. Blindness of the what? Blindness of the heart. Do you guys see that? Now, when it uses that metaphor, the blindness of the heart is saying your heart doesn't know how to find its way. Your heart doesn't know how to find its way. Do you got that? It's, it's a remarkable metaphor, but it's absolutely true. When you meet people who really don't know God, they don't know where they're going. They can't explain the conundrums of life. They may pretend to, but if you press them hard enough, as Proverbs says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So when you find people who are not serious about knowing God in the truth, they are constantly deviating and vacillating and shifting. That's what Jesus meant. If your eye is single, it's fixed. When it's not single, it's running here and there, getting caught up in this idea or this notion or this fad or this concept or this trend. You meet people doing that all the time. That's the broad road, okay? Until at a certain point, particularly for the Christian who is called to walk down the straight and narrow way, right? Until at a certain point, the heart is so hardened against the witness of the Holy Spirit that it doesn't have the ability to repent anymore. I remember the other night in our Zoom class when I made mention of this, one of the, it was a sister on the screen. So I'm, I'm, I'm watching all y'all as much as I can. I, I just love that idea of being kind of like God can see all y'all at once. <laughs> um, and, and one of the sisters just fell way back and just said, no, Lord, no. The idea of the heart becoming so hard that biblical truth does not move you anymore. And that's what we're dealing with here. This is what we're dealing with. So under sub point A, the absence of the gospel light is really the absence of that kind of influence of God that that moves you and me, that moves us. The light can shine on us and, and inform us that we're going in the wrong way. And you and I cry, Abba, Father, help me to go in the right way. Sub point B, 
in your outline, the absence of its influence to guide you. You guys remember that, right? Right. So that's the other thing about what's happening. The other thing is that when you and I are not taking the word of God seriously, it doesn't guide us. Like you can come to church and you can hear the word. But you don't go out and actually apply its principles to your life. You're not being guided by that word. You follow what I'm saying? Right. So, you know, you go through the form of hearing the message and maybe you might go. That was a good message. But there was nothing personally for you. God didn't speak in a way in which he was saying, hey, hey, there's nobody in the room but you, Jesse. Listen to what I'm saying. Right. So a long ago, when churches were serious about God's truth, you would hear in the doxology. um, uh, Keep silent, O flesh. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all flesh keep silent before him. Today is so much cacophony and so much rambling about that no one even even senses the ominousness of God's presence. And so no one can actually benefit from the word of God when you're shifting and moving and your mind is all over the place when when the word of God is being taught. That's something God has to do for you and I give us the ability. And of course, you know, that's what we pray for. So when Jesus said, if your eye is single, the whole body is full of light. That means you have your focus on the right object and you won't drift into bad pathways. So point C, uh, if the absence of the gospel light takes place, then that means the absence of influence to guide you. Then there's a loss of commitment to its what? Promises. A loss of commitment to its promises. Isn't this where this man in the cage is? He can't hear the promises anymore. That's what that text is teaching. So let's read it now. Hebrews chapter 10, 36 through 39. Remember when Christian, remember what the interpreter is telling Christian to do? Don't ask me, the interpreter said. You talk to him. And Christian said, hey, dude, is there any hope? He says, no, not at all. Now, think about what that man just did, because we're going to really walk through it. That's really what I want us to talk about before we get into the Q&A tonight, you guys, is the idea of what? Hopelessness. That's where we left off, didn't we? This man that's in the cage constitutes this kind of person. The hopeless, hellbound sinner. The hopeless, hellbound sinner. That's what he called himself. He's a hopeless, hellbound sinner. And what you and I want to get at in a little bit tonight is what happens when you and I come into a hopeless situation? Does that make sense? Because that's where he is, and I want us to get it. Now, notice what the Hebrew writer says. He says, uh, Can you start back at verse 34? Because I want to walk through this. Notice what he says. Verse 35, do verse 35. I don't want to go back too far but because I know what he's talking about. Here it is, verse 35. Here's the first imperative. Notice what this says. Cast not away, therefore your what? I want you to capture that. Please capture that. Confidence, because isn't confidence, confidence, the exact opposite of hopelessness. I want you to capture that, please. I want you to capture that. If you can think psychologically, think emotionally, think circumstantially about times when you are confident. When you and I are confident, we are in a place of optimism. 
But when you're in a state of hopelessness, optics are diminished, if not altogether eradicated. Right. So this is where we're going. So now notice what the Hebrew writer says. This is an imperative. You know what an imperative is, right? What is it? It's a command. Notice what he says. Cast, therefore, cast not away, therefore, your what? Which has great recompense of what? Did the man in the cage cast away his confidence? 100%. That's what I want you to, this is what I want you to capture. He cast away his confidence. And what I want us to work through before the class is over with is how do you get to a place where you so stop trusting God that his promises don't matter? See what I'm getting at? So this is why I wanted to drill down into it very carefully, because apparently people get there. I don't know what that's like, personally. I've been through a lot of stuff. I haven't been through enough stuff to say no to God and and say, I don't I don't I don't hear you anymore. And your promises don't matter. I haven't been there. I don't know what that's like. And I hope no one in the room has. But it's possible. You heard our dear sister Tisha the other night talking about being homeless and on the street and how God was disciplining her and how she didn't want to talk to God. And she was pushing away every uh, witness that came to her because, you know, how we talk to our brothers and sisters that are homeless. I talk to them all the time. And sometimes they're just walking around mad, cussing and fussing. Are they not? And, And when they're honest, they'll say that their argument is with God. And that's what Tisha was. And she 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 swore she had thrown God off. And then as you learn, God came and got her and brought her back. Well, this man is not recovered. So apparently Tisha did not throw all her confidence away, did she? Right. Because the word confidence is also a synonym for faith. Just in case you don't know, it's our same Hebrew term, okay, hypostases, which means faith. It's the, it's the content of our confidence has to be faith. That makes sense, right? If I'm confident, it means I'm believing God, right? So confidence is a fruit of trusting God. So I just want you to know that. I want you to capture that. And the reason why is sort of these kind of characteristics or these kind of attitudes, these kind of mental frameworks are important for you, child of God, to be able to have as a category for personal self-analysis and self-assessment. Would you agree with that? Like if your head is jacked up and you don't regard it, then then you're going to miss out on all necessary signals and markers that could tell you you are in trouble. And then once you start negative sequencing, you can go deeper and deeper until you can't even identify where you are. That makes sense, doesn't it? And it would follow then that you and I should not play with our minds. We should not play with our hearts. We should not corrupt our conscience. We should not manipulate it. We should not cut the lights off. We should not play with the alarm signal. We should want God to give us a healthy conscience, right? A healthy conscience. This is why I got four of those categories up. There are more when it comes to the conscience. Somebody told me they digged up the message from almost 20 years ago. But one of uh, one of the characteristics of a healthy conscience is that when the conscience is in good shape, that means you're not lying to God or yourself. When your conscience is good, it means you're not lying to God or yourself. Okay, so when your conscience is clear, it means you can see things for what they are. 
What that also means is that when you see what's wrong, you can recognize it for what it is. When your conscience is clean, you can you are aware of the benefits of having that wrong dealt with. That's Psalm 51. Remember what David said? Create in me, O Lord, a clean heart. Right. There is also the guilty conscience. And so obviously we're dealing with also the seared conscience, the seared conscience, that conscience that no longer can feel anything. That's what. That's what Ephesians chapter 4, 17 was saying, that the heart was without feeling, calloused. The conscience is calloused. The, once you get to callous state, you are fundamentally sociopathic. You guys know that. Uh, psychopathy or sociopath, uh, sociopath is an individual that does not care, care what happens to other people. Uh, the person that's engaging in psychopathy or a psychopath is an individual that loves to actually bring about the harm of other people because there's a power dynamic for him. He wants to be in control of situations, even if it means hurting other people. Right. And that's because his conscience or hers is seared at the level of self accountability. This was Jeffrey Dahmer for a long time. He would let you know that. And he grew up in church. But once his heart was hardened because of overt and massive levels of pornography, it it ruined his capacity to see women for what they really were. And it led to his predatorial status of going after them to uh, dominate them and then destroy them. Okay, does that make some sense? Right. And, and, and women can do the same thing. OK, just want you to know that just in case you don't know. Uh, listen to what he says. Cast not therefore away the confidence which has great recompense of re- reward. Look at verse 36. Let's walk this through. Listen to what he says. For you have need of what? That after you have done the will of God, you might receive the what? Right. So the promise of God is eternal life and all the blessings that come with it. After we have done the will of God, therefore, I need what? That's why Pilgrim was given the parable of the two boys, passion and patience. All Christians are called to what? Patience. Patience is fundamentally key to right choice making. You have never made a right choice hastily. Almost every wrong choice is a consequence of urgency, not being thoughtful, not seeing it through, being compulsive or being forced by someone to make a decision hastily. Right. The Proverbs makes that very plain. But when you become a man or a woman that has learned to be patient, guess what you are doing? You are disregarding every bad set of principles that would move you in a direction where you regret your choice. A patient person does not like regretting their choices. And I'll say it one more time and we'll move on. Someone that has learned patience has learned not to make choices that they will regret. There you go. So now notice what he goes on to say. Verse 37, verse 37, for you have for yet a little while and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. So there's the promise. And, and this one here encompasses a couple of things. It doesn't only encompass Jesus coming back on the last day, because this is coming out of Habakkuk chapter two, verse four. The just shall live by faith. They shall. Right. The just shall live by what? Faith. The just shall live by what? Faith. 
in every situation that you go through. And if you do live by faith in every situation you go through, then you're going to employ patience to make sure that after you have done the will of God in that situation, you might receive the what? Promise. Did that come home? Right. In other words, if I'm a person of faith, I'm waiting for the Lord to show up in that event so that it can have the outcome that it was determined to have since God is calling me to that situation. I'm not going to force the hand of God. I'm not going to force myself. I'm going to be patient so that the outcome is that the Lord showed up to reward me for being patient in that context. Makes sense, doesn't it? Right. It's important for you to get it. Makes sense. Now, notice what he says for yet a little while. And he that shall come will come and will not what? Right. And see, this is where people often lose patience because they don't like waiting. But there it is. The Lord will make you wait a thousand times over because for him, it's more about character than giving you stuff. See, people that want stuff is passion. People that want what God wants for them is patience. That makes sense. All right, let's let's look at two more verses. I want to move on to our second point, our third subcategory. Hebrews chapter 10, 38. If there's yeah, there's a 10, 38. Here it is. Now the just shall live by what? Right. So again, hurry up and remove a kind of religious connotation off of that. I love you and I definitely want you to not be playing the kind of religious games that people do where having heard a word so many times. Like the word faith. You completely disregard thinking about it because you just assume you know what it is. Now, when a term becomes so common with you. That you don't know whether or not you actually know what it means. The word is presumption, right? And presumption means that if that idea, if that concept, if that term, which you love to use all the time, like love and mercy or righteousness or God's goodness, God's goodness, what does that mean? I don't know. Well, all of those terms, if we have not drilled down into them to know them, we're walking in presumption, are we not? If someone challenged you on the idea of faith, could you really explain it? See what I'm getting at? So all I want you to do with me right now is that when it says now the just shall do what? Live by faith. You and I want to understand that as the foundation upon which every promise of God is given to us and we are obligated to believe the promises of God because that's what faith is. Did that come home? Right. Faith is not some ethereal concept that is rooted in my feeling like I'm trusting God because everybody will feel like they're trusting in a deity because why not? But faith is always the object of God's promises being focused upon as the grounds of your hope. Faith is always connected to the promises of God. That's why he just said after that you have endured, you might receive the what? Right. Faith is predicated upon promises, right? The, the promise of God is low that I am always with you even to the end. Is that a promise? The promise of God is that he that believeth on him shall not perish. Is that not a promise? The promise of God is that he who has begun a good work in you will what? Perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. 
The, the promise of God is that he will work in you the will and to do of his good pleasure. I can give you 50 promises, right? And the man in the cage cannot hear one of them now. See what I'm getting at? So somewhere along the line, his Bible got lost. And the promises which are innumerable in scripture for the people of God no longer can benefit him. And, and you and I can ask the question, how is it that I can have a Bible as fat as my Bible is, filled with thousands of promises, and those promises don't matter to me in a given scenario when all of those promises are designed to meet you in a particular trial? A hundred verses per trial to clothe you in the hope of the gospel. And you might say, I have no hope. I'm in a hopeless condition, even though there are 10,000 promises in God's word to meet every situation you're in. That means something happened between me and the book of promises, right? Where I got disconnected from those promises. And now I am in a what kind of state? Hopeless. This is what the Hebrew writer was saying when he says, cast therefore not away your confidence. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no what? Now this is a promise by the writer to the Hebrew. Now think about the Hebrew writer as a pastor. Notice what he's saying. There's no pleasure in him when he see people depart from the faith. Do you see that? That gives you an insight into the value system that people of God have. Follow me now, because this is really interesting. If people have come into the faith, professed to be a believer and walk with the saints, and then they just departed, abandoned the gospel, rejected Jesus as Lord, and maybe have taken up all kind of idolatrous, demonic, de- devilish systems, even opposing the gospel. Because that's what Paul said in the book of Philippians. There were those who were followers of the gospel who ultimately became enemies of the cross. Christians should not take pleasure in apostasy. Does that make sense? Christians should not take pleasure in apostasy. And here's the reason why. Because until you and I reach glory, we could be an apostate. Or our children. Or our grandchildren. Like, you know what God says in the book of Ezekiel? The Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So... Ye who love the Lord do what? What? See, you only know what? Know their Bible. Psalm 9710. You should know these verses. You should see, we live in a culture today where society has uprooted the believer from the promises of God. And so we can't even quote them in defense of God's promises to us today. Am I making sense? Right. You who love the Lord hate evil. That's so critically important. Now, the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Is there one more verse here? Verse 39. Listen to what verse 39 says, and then we'll go on. But we are not of them that what? Draw back unto perdition. Now, now the Hebrew writer is saying to the Hebrews, hey, you may go back, but we're not going back. Right. Notice what he says. But we are of them that do what? Believe to the saving of the soul. Now, there is your aim and objective when it comes to faith. We believe to the saving 
of our soul. There's the dividing line. Y'all got that? There's the dividing line. There are people when a little persecution come or trouble or difficulty, they, they go away from God. That's what the Hebrews were doing. If you read the whole 10th chapter, they were suffering for the gospel and they said, we're done with this. We didn't we didn't come to Jesus in order to suffer. We came to Jesus in order to be blessed. That's exactly what they said. And then when trouble came for Jesus name, they took off on him. Right. Remember what Jesus said. He says, hey, if a man put his hand to the plow and turn back from the kingdom, he's not worthy of the kingdom. He says, you can't even be my disciple if you're not willing to take up your cross, deny yourself and suffer for me. Now, these are the parts of the gospel in the 21st century that people don't like to hear and they're not being taught in their churches. So so this is where we are under point number one. Under point number one, we're in a horrible place under subpoint C, the loss of commitment to its promises. When you meet a person that no longer can 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 rejoice in the promises of God. Um, you're in a bad state. It's, it's called a what kind of state? Hopeless state. Now, this word hopeless comes from the word that can be translated despair. I want you to pick that one up because isn't that what the man said he was in a state of despair, right? So I want to walk through some verses on that to help you understand that Bunyan was warning people not to play games with God to the degree that you are separated from him to a point where you despair of life. I'm going to walk you through some passages because this was the condition of Israel, even though the prophets had come to them over and over and over and over and over and over again, telling them to return to the Lord, return to the Lord, return. And you know what they said? There is no hope. Now we're going to we're going to walk that through in the Q&A. But look with me right now in Hebrews in Jeremiah chapter two in Jeremiah chapter two. Listen to what Jeremiah chapter two, starting at verse 22, then through 25. I want you to hear what it says. Listen to how the appeal comes from the prophet to the people who profess to be believers in Yahweh. And, and the prophets were of that of their family. Jeremiah was part of the tribes that he's talking to. He's talking to the tribes of Judah. Listen to what he says. He says, for though, this is Jeremiah 2.22, for though you wash yourself with nitre, that's a mode of cleansing, and take thee up much soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me, saith the Lord. Now that's a powerful metaphor of saying this, that the nation of Israel had so sinned against the Lord that he would not allow even their going through external religious, what was called a form of cleansing. That is take, you know, uh, take off your clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, throw up dust, maybe wash and cleanse. Because remember, Israel was really high into cleanliness. Remember when Jesus came on the scene and him and the disciples was, you know, eating corn on the way to church. And, and he would say they would say to Jesus, how come your, your disciples don't wash their hands? And that's where Jesus in Matthew 15 told him, because this is a heart matter, not a hand matter. This is not a show in the flesh. That's the problem with religion. It makes an appearance of being clean, but the heart is still filthy. And this is what this is what Jesus, this is what uh, Yahweh is saying to Israel. Your iniquities are still marked before me, Lord. He's saying you can come with sacrifices. You can do oblations. That's the term. You can do cleansing. You can do fasting. The problem is not what you're doing. The problem is your. That's right. Look at the next verse. Twenty three. Jeremiah 2, 23. How can you say I am not polluted? 
I have not gone after Baalim. Baalim are many false gods. That's what the term Balaam means. Uh, See your way in the valley. Know what you have done. You are a swift dromedary traversing her ways. This is for those of you who don't read your Bible. You couldn't possibly know what this means. God now is using the metaphor of a bunch of donkeys, female donkeys that are in heat. And like all animals, when the female is in heat, she sends off pheromones and she sends off pheromones to get the male to come in. It's called the biological imperative. Does that make sense? She's looking for a man. And what God says is Israel is like a harlot out looking for other gods to have sex with her, even though Israel is married to to Yahweh. Do you see the point here? Notice what he says. How can you say you're not polluted? I have not gone after Balaam. Look at your way in the valley. So now right here, guess what God is doing? God is cutting the lights on to help them uh, engage in self-reflection and accountability, is he not? They're not going to pay him any attention. This would be the metaphor of a husband and a wife arguing. And it doesn't matter who's right. You, you, do, you, you can have your own issues. Keep that to yourself. Uh, this is a metaphor of a husband and a wife arguing and the wife being able to bring a complete list of the husband's rebellion. And he still not pay attention to it or vice versa. Are you hearing me? And not only is he not paying attention to it, he's saying, I'm not doing anything wrong. And she's saying, what? Let me show you the list. She got all of the pictures and vice versa. And, and the point is here is that God sees everything, doesn't he? So if God comes to you and say, hey, this is what you're doing. Why would you argue with God unless you are hopeless? So now when a person is hopeless in a relationship where they're cheating on their spouse, y'all keeping up with me? When they're hopeless in a relationship where they're cheating on their spouse, they may go to futile lying. It really is futile denial. Did that make some sense? Denial of the facts that are obvious. Like, you know, I told you about 48 hours, how they used to catch the criminals, cameras everywhere. They got the criminal smiling while he got the bag. And then when he gets in the courtroom or in the investigation room, he says, that wasn't me. That wasn't me. We got you on camera. No, that wasn't me. That's somebody else. Right. And so he's in what is called futile denial because the evidence is clear, isn't it? It's incontrovertible. It's important for you to know that the heart can become that callous and that self-deceptive. This is what we're dealing with with the man in the cage. It's important for you to know that. Look at verse 24. Here it is. A wild ass. He's talking about Israel. That's the donkey, female donkey. A wild ass used to the wilderness that snuffeth up the wind at her pleasure. That means she's she's seeking out male companions snuffeth up at the wind and her, in, her, in her pleasure, in her occasion, who can what? Turn her away. All they that seek her will not weary themselves in her month, they shall find her. This is God depicting national Israel in the avarice of idolatry, in a state of avarice idolatry without repentance. Again, if you want the metaphor to go home more deeply, just read the book of Hosea. Hosea is about God telling the prophet to marry a whore and to endure the rebellious behavior of the whore so that Israel, through the prophet, can get a picture of what they're doing to God. 
This is why I've said for 26 years in this place, I'm so glad I'm in the New Testament. Because in the Old Testament, God might have you to do some hard stuff. <laughs> and they had to do it. I've already shared with you what prophets in the Old Testament had to do, right? Because they stood as a pantomime. They stood as an allegory. They stood as a metaphor, a mediating uh, mechanism between God and the people to show the people where God's mind was. And some of those fellows had to walk around naked. They had to do all kind of crazy stuff in order for God to get the message across to Israel. And most of the time, it still didn't go. This is where we're going. After all of this appeal, look at the next verse. Look at the next verse. Verse 25. Withhold your foot from being unshod. What is he saying there? He's saying, don't take off your clothes and climb in the bed with some Tom, Dick and Harry. I'm married to you. There it is. And again, here's the second line. And your throat from what? Withhold your throat from uh, thirst. And that is speaking to the deep commitment to idolatrous gratification with someone else other than God. Now, if we were to just stop and just really think about how profoundly, how profoundly urgent God's plea and overtures to Israel was at that point, it should humble us, shouldn't it? Because God is spending a lot of energy telling his people, hey, I see you. He's making a solid case against their behavior and they're still not obeying. Watch this. Withhold your foot from being unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said this is what his wife is saying. Israel saying to him. Here it is. Do y'all see it? There is no what? Stop right there for a moment. So finally, what happens is she's honest. Because she's in the courtroom, all the evidence is laid out and he's God has pressed her now. You know what can happen in relationships where someone is guilty of a crime of behavior. They can argue and deny. Didn't I tell you feudal denial and they can deny and deny. And then what we can do is we can kind of adjourn, you know, the court for today. And then you can go on and then you got to come back another day. And this goes on in relationships all the time. We're going to adjourn for today. Going to adjourn. But at one point, you can't have any more adjournments. And this is where finally Israel says, there is no hope for I have loved strangers. And after them, I'm going. Do you understand what's going on here? Israel just said to God, I'm out. Do you see it? This is what we mean by hopelessness. You understand? Now, what's really bizarre about that, go to Isaiah chapter 57. I want you to see it one more time. I'm going to talk this through so I can keep moving. Isaiah 57, 10. I want you to think this through with me for a moment. It's one thing in the context of relationships where two people are rotten. Is that possible? Right. I said this many years ago. This was a profound revelation I gave to Grace many years ago. Profound revelation. Y'all ready for this? A Christian and a Christian doesn't make two good Christians. That's profound. Then the other thing I said was a Christian husband and a Christian wife does not make a good marriage. Right? Now, and I know you, you're ready to argue, but the evidence is already in. I'm sorry. 
I know you're ready to argue. And, and, and here's where the argument would lie. Your argument would lie on your expectation of them behaving like Christians, right? The problem is that Christians don't always behave like Christians. Is that true? This is the problem here. This is why for us, we really want to take heed to the warnings of Scripture, do we not? Right. We want to take heed to the warnings of Scripture because we don't want to be guilty of being a fair, flourishing Christian until the end. And then one day discover he wasn't a Christian at all. She wasn't a Christian at all. This is why this is why Mr. Bunyan let this be the sixth frame instead of the first one. He got one more frame to deal with. And I don't know how difficult that one's going to be. This one is kind of tough, this study, but it's important. We'll see how the last frame works. But notice what the text says. God says the same thing with Israel. You are wearied in the greatness of your what? All right. You're wearied in the greatness of your ways. What do you mean by that, Pastor? I'm so glad you have. I have your attention because what it's talking about here now is the wrong choice making that we engage in across many events that end up actually depleting us of any kind of coherence and therefore confidence and therefore optimism. I'm going to drill down into that. Can I do that? Right. Because, you know, if you are not if you and I, if you and I are not in touch with the vulnerability of our humanness, if you're not in touch with the the vulnerability of your capacity for self-deception and self-manipulation, this verse doesn't mean anything to you. Because like a lot of people love to live in the deception that they're all right. Am I making some sense? Right. But they're wearied. They're wearied. They're worn down. They got a fine job. You know, they're relatively healthy, except, you know, their wrong choice making is getting them sick. Half of half of our physical sickness is wrong choice making. You almost cannot separate a biological uh, malady from a neuropsychological origin. Right. In other words, it's almost impossible to go. My sickness or my disease is not a corresponding response to some kind of behavior pattern that I sustained over a long period of time that led to my immune system wearing down and opening me up to this affliction. Am I making some sense now? You guys are some smart people. We've been doing medicine for the last four years since COVID. So you should get it now. Frequently, when you meet people that are ill and sick, a portion of that can be attributed to behavior. And this is why at the beginning of our study, what I wanted us to do was pay attention to this attitude thing. I wanted us to pay attention to the issue of the conscience. That's what we're talking about now, right? We're talking about the conscience because the conscience is that domain that that circumscribes you and God. Like once once we're talking about the domain of the conscience, there's nobody in there but you and God. The word conscious indicates a subject object relationship. God knows you. You know God and God knows. What you're thinking, what you're perceiving, what you're what you're anticipating, how you're working things out. That's that's the reason why people want to um, they want to nullify the conscious, don't they? This is where a whole lot of pathological behavior leads to despair and hopelessness because the conscious is often what? Seared. And it's seared through affliction, isn't it? 
is seared through abuse. It's seared through neglect. Would you agree with that? So the what I mean by the outcome of searing literally in first Timothy four two, it's the metaphor of an iron being heated and then put on the skin for branding. So this is what would happen to slaves, as you know. You take a brand and you brand the skin and the flesh is now calloused so that it doesn't have flexibility and neither does it have what? Filling. Two things are gone now. Flexibility and what? Filling. Filling and what? Flexibility. And that's a description of how the conscious no longer is able to work freely. You need a free conscious. You need a conscious that has the capacity to feel. You need a conscious that has the capacity to hear God and to and to and to negotiate warning. You need a conscious. You need a conscious that is not calloused and hardened so that when warnings come, you just override the warning. I'm making some sense, right? So so remember, I told you on, on Wednesday how I had contemplated the benefit of something happening in my life recently that shook me up. It wasn't an, an intentional sin on my part, but nevertheless, it was a, it was an error. It wasn't an error that hurt anybody. Nobody even knew about it but me. And I was so thankful that I had a conscience that was gripped with the wrong I had engaged in. And, and it wasn't with anybody but God. And it gripped me enough to keep me up that night, woke me up that morning, set me on a course to say, Jesse, we got to fix this. This one got to be fixed, bro. Right. And I'm waiting on the Lord for grace and grace comes and I course correct in my heart. And when I course corrected in my heart by God's grace, guess what came? Freedom. Freedom is what grace brings when Christ comes into your life. And he doesn't free you to act like this harlot against Jehovah. Y'all see what I'm getting at, right? And so this is extremely important. You are wearied in the greatness of your ways. Yet you said there is no what? That's the idea of the word despair. When a person is despairing, they are what? Hopeless. There's no hope. You have found the life of your hand. Therefore, you were not grieved. This is really interesting. You're wearied in what you're going through but you're not grieved. Can you see the contradiction in those two? Can you see it? All right, we're going to get into Q&A in a little bit, but look, look at how God talks. Look at how profoundly the word of God engages in psychology. Don't ever tell me your Bible is not a psychology book. It deals with the mind. It deals with the heart. It deals with the thought. It deals with the behavior. Does it not acutely and poignantly? And it really labors with us to be honest with ourselves. Didn't I tell you in Psalm 51, David said, hey, God, you desire truth where? That's where God desires truth. This is why David was a man after God's own heart, because he knew God. God deals with a brother or sister inside. God loves you enough to deal with you privately before he deals with you publicly. And this is where I love God to show up with me privately. Thank you, Lord, because I know what you're going to do if I keep ignoring you. He's going to make it plain upon the tables because that's what he had to do with Israel. And now all of a sudden Israel is in chains with their butts out as they're walking as a whole nation from Jerusalem to Babylon. Every all the nations are watching them now. 
And that's after um, there's, that's after 900 years of disobedience. Now, God is patient. Is God patient? All right. So that's that's the point here. What I what I what I just wanted you to tag here is that when we're talking about this man in the cage under uh, Bunyan's metaphor is that Bunyan knows the Bible, doesn't he? And Bunyan is really extracting from the scripture to set the foundation for these allegories. So if people ask you why you're reading the book of Pilgrim's Progress, because it's thoroughly rooted in scripture. And it lays out for us in allegories and metaphors and analogies, rich particulars of the life of the believer. And we're thankful for it. After all, all all, uh, Pilgrim's Progress is, it's like the Bible. The Bible does the same thing. The Bible is full of vignettes of narratives of these kind, right? So this is extremely important for us to comprehend. I, I want you to I want you to understand. Now, now go with me to Second Corinthians chapter four. I'm going to walk from the light to the darkness and show you how um, the Christian who walks properly with God can go through all kinds of trouble and does not have to despair. I want you to see it. But I want us to be able to talk through why you and I might be led to despair. I want us to think that through because remember what I said a little earlier about how we, you know, we'll use all kind of words, right? And I'll go, well, but if you were challenged on that word, could you defend the meaning of that word? Am I making sense? So if you tell me I'm in despair, it's hopeless. Can you really make good on that proposition? Stay with me. Before we go there, I want to just appeal to you on this. Can I do that? Can I do that? What I want us to do is learn how to actually hear what we're saying. Do you hear me? Hear what you're saying. Don't just borrow words from the world because it fits the scenario for you. You know, you know, our world is full of drama queens and drama kings, is it not? And, and, And the world is engaging in narratives that we know are inflated, distorted and not true. Is that true? And the world constantly builds narratives around explosive emotional terms. Is that not also true? Is that not also true? And, and, and we can easily adopt those concepts and attach them to ourselves and say, I'm a man of despair. Right. I'm like, OK, explain that to me and explain why you are a man of despair. As a Christian. Or as I told you before, I'm going to lift this one up again. Everybody loves to use the word love and I can barely find a person that knows how to define the term. Are you hearing me? Well, love is this love. No, no, love is more than that. Well, love, and then they'll, they'll sit for like 10 seconds trying to figure out, now what is love? You done used it a million five hundred times and you don't know what it is. See, we want to we wanna pass for muster the assumption that we know what these terms mean because we use them all the time, right? Now, love as a rule is not that harmful that's sad, but it's not that harmful. Give me a little bit of time. I'm going to use these as juxtapositions. Can I do that? You know, I love you. Okay, that's not super harmless. 
But but if you don't, you just lie. Man, I love you, man. Super harmless. But in a situation where I might need you, you don't come through. It didn't mean anything. So here you are taking a perfectly suitable word for relationship that should start vertically, by the way. And employing it to every Tom, Dick and Harry you meet. Hey, I love you, man. I love you, girl. Girl, you're my girl. I love you. And yet you can't really define love in a substantial enough way for it to correspond with the one who actually is the epitome of love, which is God himself. Am I making some sense? And the same thing I'm going to say here with despair, because what I do know in the class overall, we've got about 200 people following us in this in our Zoom class as well. And uh, YouTube class um, is that I want to make sure that tonight that we don't go away from here misdefining ourselves as associating with this man in the cage when it's not true. Did you hear what I just stated? Right. Because people, a lot of times when we're not really grounded, we'll attach ourselves to anything that even looks remotely like my own circumstance. But if you haven't fleshed out everything that is being said about this man, you could actually be bearing false witness against yourself. And this is why I want us to be more thoughtful Christians. Because what if there is one or two of us in the house that's saying, I know I'm the man in the cage. And yet when we go through all of the lines of explicit and articulate uh, confession on his part of what constitutes the man in the cage, you only meet half of that criteria. If you only meet half of that criterion, can you be said to be the man in the cage? What's the answer? No. Is that a good thing? It's necessary for you to drill that low because if you buy the notion that you, if, if you are number one and he's number two and you say number one is equivalent to number two and yet in reality, number one is not equivalent to number two, but you assert that number one is by a percentage, let's say 50%, right? Well, what if somebody comes along and says, well, I'm number three, but I'm also number two, just like you, but it's only 40% for me. And then somebody else comes along and says, I'm number two, but I'm number four in reality, but I think I'm number two, but I only got 30% of his characteristics. You see how this goes odd, you know, ad nauseum, where we are being uh, careless about actually understanding what this is about. Can I, can I do one more, put one more bow on that before I go on to my other point? The reason why Christian is made to see the man in the cage is because he is not the man in the cage. And the goal is for him to see the end of such a dreadful, pathetic condition so that he never, ever ends up there. Are you guys listening to me? And he won't, even though he's going to come into a trial that's going to be extremely close to that. When we get there, we'll be able to see the correlation and the differences between the two. And we'll go, aha, then it is true. God loves us when he warns us. Right. Y'all keeping up with me? That's why I took you to Hebrews 12 and said, all whom the Lord loves, he what? 
and warnings are chastenings. Some of y'all mamas and daddies in here, we wore out all of our warnings on our kids, didn't we? We just wore them out. After a while, we just got tired of warning them. Can I get a, a, an amen on that? Amen. That's part of the duty of being a parent, warning your children. Why? Because you don't want them to hit their head up against something that's really going to harm them down the road. So warnings are expressions of real agape which is what God is doing here. Good. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry. Okay, start at verse number uh, uh, number seven for me, please. Verse number seven. I want to walk through this. This is describing a true believer. Okay. Who has actually experienced the saving knowledge of Christ in a way of being truly born again. That's going to be verse uh, four through six. For God has shined the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ into their heart. When a man or woman has really seen the glory of God in Christ and really see Jesus for who he is, their heart has been illuminated unto a conversion that leads them to love him and pursue him. Does that make sense? Right. Now, I want you to follow what verse seven says. And I taught you this a couple of weeks ago on Sunday, and I want you to capture this. I want you to capture verse seven because here is a paradox in verse seven that I need you to hold on to. Can you do that? Look at verse seven. Verse seven says, but we, that is the Christian that has experienced the regenerative light of the gospel and has brought them into a saving knowledge of Jesus because God has shined it where? Where did he shine it? In the heart and gave them a full understanding of the merits of Christ's atoning work as applied to them on the grounds for which they are now the righteousness of God in him. That's a happy day, is that not? That's called the light of the gospel. Then verse seven says, but we have this treasure. Now, what is the treasure? The gospel. You got it? So Paul is about to explain something. I did not share that with you a couple of weeks ago about the earthen vessel. Jeremiah was commanded to buy a deed and put it in the vessel and cover it up so that it could be preserved for many days. But it was an earthen vessel. That's the paradox, right? A treasure inside an earthen vessel. You see the paradox? Do y'all see the paradox? This is what it's meant to be a Christian. The treasure on the inside of the of the vessel. Did that make some sense? That means whatever beautiful, brilliant promises that are inherited in the propositions on that contract, they're hid inside the vessel. Are they hid? Which means people on the outside of the vessel cannot know the contents inside. That puts the Christian in a certain kind of predicament. Raise your hand if, if you understand what I just said, because I'm going to keep going. If you don't get it, you, th- this is a problem. And this is where false religion and works religion is a very dangerous thing. Because you got all kind of vases, vases. They're called vases. Did you know that? The vases. From all of the different nations. And I love the ornate vases that they make, don't you? Well, I've got a few in my house. When me and Barb go on trips around the world, we pick up vases. And I have a vase here, the vase there. Beautiful external ornate vases with gold trim and silver and all that, right? And it's beautiful externally. It can be as empty as a bucket on the inside. So now the only thing that's alluring me is what's on the outside. 
A Christian is never to be attractive by merely what's on the outside. Did that make some sense? Right. Because you could lie to people. You could say you came from India, but then when we turn your vessel upside down, it's made in Taiwan. Now you're real. Now you're real cheap Christian. We caught you. When your world was turned upside down, we said you, he made it in Taiwan. That thing cost $20. It cost more to ship it here than the thing was cost to be made. You made us think that you were all that, right? And yet what Paul says here, this vessel in the which this treasure is, is what we call in the South. Y'all don't even know this yet. Y'all don't know this. It's called a spit can. See, in the South, we had what was cost. That's only like... Uh, t- t- five people in here nodding their heads this year. Only five people nodding their heads. We had what was called spit cans. I grew up with spit cans. The MJB coffee, coffee pot was a spit can. My grandma, my aunties, all had spit cans. I'm, I'm three years old looking at their mouth. Big old water snuff in their mouth. And they talking to them. <laughs> Keep talking. Yeah, in the spit can. This is true. In, this is true in all ethnic groups. I know I got I got y'all. I got y'all all kind of ethnic folks in here and y'all kind of looking all crazy. All ethnic. Our folks have been chewing on stuff that we could not identify. You talking about, you know, grounded, unidentified objects and sticking it in our mouth and spitting it back out for years. You don't know what's in that stuff. They just ground that stuff up, put a little brown coloring on it, and you stick it in your mouth. My brother reached his and said, I know what you're talking about. I had some one time as a little boy. One time. I never had a craving for snuff ever. I think that helped me avoid smoking because I was told that cigarettes were a derivative of the snuff. I'm like, whoa. I'm going somewhere because what Paul said is that you and I are earthen vessels that externally we are no more attractive than a spit can. So if there is a glory to be attracted to, it has to be an internal glory and not an external one. Did that make some sense? Let me keep walking because see, I want you to deal with a wrong self image or distortion thereof or modification of it because of a lack of sound biblical grounding when it comes to what it means to be a Christian so that you don't uh, unjustly condemn yourself along with this man in the cage. Is that all right? Give me a few more minutes. We'll get to some Q&A. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels in order that the excellency of the power that's constituent with the treasure There's a power in that treasure that is excellent. There's a power in that treasure that is excellent. But the power in that treasure that is excellent is of God and not of us. So so that creates another little nuanced detail. First of all, the outer me is not appealing. The thing inside of me is hidden. But the thing inside of me that will do any alluring or drawing is of God so that I don't even get to steal the glory. 
because he put it in me. Does that make some sense? Now, this is where you become an informed Christian. Because an informed Christian does not go around telling people how beautiful they are, how good they are, how glorious they are, how well behaved they are. You know, you know, you're not well behaved. Stop all that. See, if they hang out long enough with you, they might want to take their snuff and spit it in your can. Yes, they might. Right. Because they will see sides of you that are so earthen. The only reason they won't spit in is because they've been told by you it's something valuable on this. I don't spit in me. But they spat on my master, which will be worshiping him in a few weeks. So he must have also assumed a spit can humanity. So, you know, you got religious folk who love to make Jesus so pretty. So fair skinned, so long haired, effeminate and glowing. Which is a lie from hell. Am I making some sense? 100 percent. Jesus was as common as the most common person you can imagine. And if he walked in here, you wouldn't recognize him because when he came unto his own, they didn't recognize him. He made he came, the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. There was no glory, no beauty, no splendor in him that we should desire him. Isn't that the prophet? What does that mean? He looked just like your pastor. He looked just like one of us. Did y'all get that? Nothing about his external facade made him extraordinarily more attractive than any other human being. Now, the devil, that's how he looks, but not Jesus. Jesus looks like the most common man in the world because the excellency of the power was also in him because he had to be a prototype for us. Does that make some sense? Read it for yourself if you don't believe me. Isaiah chapter 61, Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah 54, It'll lay it out. In fact, by the time he was crucified, none of us even wanted to look on him. That's how much of an earthen vessel he was. All right, let's keep going. Verse eight. I want to walk through four, six more verses. We'll have a conversation. Look like we're going to have to take up our class Tuesday, too. And now notice what Paul says. He, he just said we, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power might be of God and not of us. And now immediately, guess what he's talking about? Trouble. Do y'all see that? The earthen vessel that has the excellency of the gospel, the message of redemption, the presence of the divine. We are partakers of the divine nature. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in him. Written on the documents, rolled up as a scroll, put on the inside of that vessel. And the next thing he talks about is that vessel going through trouble. Isn't that amazing? Now, you would think with vessels that have that kind of content on the inside, you would protect that thing. You would put it in a cage or in a cabinet like wealthy people do with their most expensive vases. Notice what Jesus does with the vessel of the people of God. He leaves them in the world. He leaves them in the world. Is that where they are? Look at it. 
we are troubled from time to time. Is that what it says? We are troubled from time to time. We are troubled once a year. Is that what it says? We're troubled every six months. Is that what it says? We're troubled every once in a while when, when we make somebody mad at us. We're troubled on every side. Now, I want you to catch this because I'm giving you the resume of the apostles. Then I want to ask you, are you troubled on every side? Notice what he says. We're troubled on every side, yet we are not what? Ah, see, there you go. Here's a paradox now. Here's a vessel cast into the waters, the topsy-turvy waters of the wicked, as Isaiah 57 verse 22 says. The wicked are like the troubled sea. Tossed to and fro, they're never at rest. <clears throat> they're never at rest. One of the things you can know about uh, the wickedness of ungodly uh, societies, we love them, we want them to be saved, but when you go hang out with them, about five minutes into hanging out with them, you know they're being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. The wicked don't have the stability of the solid rock of Jesus under their feet. Am I making some sense? Hang out with them. I hang out with the best of them. I'm talking about wealthy, ungodly people. You hang out with them about 10, 20 minutes in, they will start telling you their problems, won't they? Because they have them. See, they put on a good, fair show in the flesh because they got enough money to do it. But once you get close to them, you can, they, they, they're taking in all kind of, you know, psychotropes and all kinds of medicine because their head is all jacked up and their soul is all jacked up. They don't know, you know, whether they're coming or going tossed to and fro by every wind of dark. Am I making some sense? I'm looking at uh, therapists in the house. I'm looking at medical personnel in the house. I'm looking at people who deal with that right now. I know, you know, I'm telling the truth. It's remarkable to meet multi multi-millionaires that are virtually walking insane. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. Why? The treasure on the inside. Now that vessel is floating on the water right along with everybody else's vessel. Am I telling the truth? We're in the same world with everybody else. We're tossed to and fro in this world right along with everybody else. But if there is an equalizing mechanism in us, like the ship that will never uh, turn over or capsize, it's the treasure on the inside that's keeping us from capsizing. Does that make some sense? All right, so watch it. We are troubled on every side, but we're not distressed. We are perplexed. Do you guys understand what perplexity is? I'm going to open up the mic and see if y'all know what perplexity is. Y'all just say, yep. Told y'all about words now. I want y'all to tell me what perplexity is. But notice what the apostle says. I'm perplexed, but I'm not what? I'm not what? That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? Right. And see, you know, if we're done here, I need somebody running with the mic so we can have some conversation. Um, these are some good words to look up for tonight, aren't they? Some good words. Raise your hand if you guys want to contribute legitimately to our dialogue, because we're going to talk for about 10, 15 minutes and get out of here. Raise your hand. So I want you to think about this with me. What what does it mean to be in a perplexing situation? but not despairing of that perplexity. 
Y'all see that? Anybody, anybody want to take a shot? No, n- nobody wants to take up the mic. Girl, I told y'all how to do this. You can't do this. The guys can't see you. We got one brave person in the house. If anybody, you got to raise your hand. They can't see you if you don't raise your hand. And they're, they're not obligated to find you if you don't raise your hand. Yeah, well, that's, that's really what I'm taking. We're not getting ready to have another Bible study. So the... And, and in answer to the question, we want to just talk this through a little bit. One of the things I learned many years ago uh, in the Christian church is Christians don't like to address difficult questions. They don't like to. I remember this years ago, even pastors don't. Many years ago, when I started doing ministry, one of the things I learned when I was circuit preaching was that pastors will often teach tight little quaint messages. And the message would be fine, except for with one kind of person. That's a thinking person. So like a thinking person listening to a message will go, but what about this? And what about that? And what about this? Even though you stated something that was fairly obvious, it has a number of serious implications that you didn't address. Can you address those? Am I making some sense? One of the reasons I do Q&A and most people glaze over at the Q&A is because we're not expository listeners. We don't even know how to ask the right questions when topics are brought up. But college students do because they're, they're taught to be critical in their analysis, right? So when they hear a, a teacher preaching the word of God, the college student will ask several questions. If we say there is one true and living God and he is God alone and besides him there is no other and the whole church goes amen, the college students are going to say, but what about the other 300 million gods that have been around since the beginning of time? And then the preacher will go, well, that's not for me to answer. Yes, it is. It's not only for you to answer. It's for mama to answer and daddy to answer. The ones that brought you into the world. You didn't ask to come here. Am I making some sense? So your kids get to ask you, hey, why is it that you're saying that Jehovah is the one true and living God when there are all kind of gods in the world? You have to be ready to answer that. This is why we do Q&A in this church. To help you think through difficult questions. One more argument for it. Everything about the ministry of Jesus was almost totally Q&A. You don't have Matthew, Mark, Luke and John if you don't have Jesus being hit with a thousand questions all over the place and being willing to answer them. So you don't want to be a part of a church that's afraid to deal with the hard questions and implications of theological propositions. Am I making some sense? Right. Because if you have the truth, you should be able to explain the truth and defend the truth. All right. So we're going to take a few and call it a wrap. And if you got stirred up by that, raise your hand. There are no dumb questions. There are never any dumb questions. You may not frame it right. right, We'll help you. But there's no dumb questions. And, And the only dumb students are the students that never raise their hand and never ask the question. You guys know that. Go ahead. So to the question of the vessel in the turbulent water. um, How to be perplexed but not despair. Right. 
faith and hope. So if you have faith that you were created uh, for purpose and to live for all eternity, you have to ride all the different um, waves of life with faith that, you know, these things are here to teach you stuff, teach other people stuff, but it's really ultimately kind of like the pilgrim, your, your path to eternity. And he, Jesus tells us it's never going to be easy, but when we have our faith and our eyes gazed on um, the true and living God and we trust that, you know, he's got us, that gives us peace even in the midst of the storm. The other thing I was just thinking about was if you find gratitude that you know God and that you love God and that he has you and you focus on that, you won't be focused on, ah, I'm in the storm. You'll be focused on, he's got me. This is part of my story. This is part of my journey on my way to eternity. And it will help that turbulent gnarly water not be as you know gnarly as it could be if you were you know not gazed on kind of gratitude and trust and faith and hope i like what she said did you like what she said very good what was lacking in what she said i'm going to share with you what was lacking this is not an indictment it's just the follow-up question that comes with a positive affirmation of a particular kind of attribute or characteristic that we may have at the present time. At the present time, I may have a robust enough faith to ride the waves until I get seasick. And then once I'm seasick, now I'm dealing with a loss of equilibrium for so many potential factors that diminishes my capacity to have faith or believe. And now I'm like the disciples of whom I am not better than. When the waves were raising up in Mark's gospel, chapter eight, Matthew 15, they said, Lord, do you care that we perish? So at that point, what was absent in them? Faith. This goes back to the question that J.R. A.J. was raising two weeks ago. What about the man who said, Lord, I believe, but what? Help my unbelief, because that's where the Christian is, right? So on the one equation, my dear sister lays out the fundamental key to dealing with the perplexities of life. It is certainly true that you have to have faith. Isn't that what Jesus said? Right. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the midst of the sea. But a bunch of y'all grew up under that kind of teaching and you know it doesn't correspond with reality across the totality of your experience. So we got to fix that because often we make statements. We chew off more than we can handle. Is that right? And what we don't want to do, which is why often our kids don't follow us in our religion, is we give one half of the story, but not the other half. What happens when my faith is not adequate enough to ride the waves and then I begin to sink like Peter did? You see what I'm getting at? So don't be like, like, forgive me. What I don't want you to do is be quick with Bible answers and not have thought it through. Because we do that a lot. I'm thinking about the person 
who was just a year ago doing well in college and now is in an institution for mental problems. And I don't get to just go in there and quote a Bible verse. Am I, am I making some sense? I want us to be careful to, uh, we have the Bible verses, we should have them. Quote them to yourself, but be very ready to think through, is this Bible verse adequate to this person's need? See what I'm saying? Now the word of God certainly is, but it's a matter, it's a matter of how the word is applied. It really is. How are you going to apply the word in a situation where a loved one is in prison for life? Or in prison for a crime they didn't commit? Or in a mental institution because they are dealing with levels of psychosis and, and you know, neuroticism that have them uh, unable to, to even think straight? There's a lot of that. And by the way, just stating that this is just a roundabout way to say I agree with my sister. But um, one of the reasons why people moved away from the church is because the church historically oversold mere incantations of words and mystic doctrines that never, ever address the complex complexities of the human makeup at the neuropsychological, physiological, psychosomatic level, because it wasn't aware of how those dynamics work to be able to minister to it. In other words, often the church and the Catholic church was a major component and Orthodox church of that heresy of thinking you could just wave wands and burn incense and cast out devils when people were going through major, major, profoundly psychosomatic, neuro, physio, uh, biological complexities that didn't always mean they had a demon. Are you guys hearing what I'm saying? So that was what it's called in, in the theological realm, a major misdiagnosis, misdiagnosis of the problem, which caused the world to move away from the church, particularly when it was finding answers at that limited physiological and psychological level from doctors who cared. So the medical industry emerged up out of Christian care where Christian care failed and the medical industry emerged. It didn't even mean that the people who were part of the medical industry, you know, who engaged in what was called the, um, the, the um, Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. And this goes all the way back to Plato and Socrates, because many of our scientists were doctors and they were also believers. Am I making some sense? And they knew to engage in care from a therapeutic standpoint instead of a dominating and controlling standpoint, which is where we are today. Today, we're so divorced from God in the equation that people are hopeless in those dimensions, seeking salvation purely from a uh, 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 medicinal standpoint without also the uh, integration of a theological foundation and hoping God as a mechanism for intervention. It's important for us to be able to reason through. Can a believer get to the point of perplexity where they are on the brink of despair? Of course they can. Of course they can. Of course, of course they can. Of course they can. And what do they need in that in, in occasion? They need God to intervene. Do they not? Y'all keeping up with me? So when Peter was sinking, walking on the water, help, Lord! But remember, this man here can't even call on God now. 
What, what, what the believer has to make sure he is capable of doing is calling on God before he sinks. Am I making sense? This is why we don't want to, We want to be careful that our hearts don't harden to the point where we because remember our boy Jonah I gave you the case study with Jonah. Jonah was willing to drown. Was he not? He was willing to drown not to obey God until after a while he said, no, nah, I don't think I want to die. And then he started calling on God. This is where people get close to wanting to commit suicide. And they're believers. Are you hearing me? These matters are serious. This is why church folks shouldn't play games with the Bible. Uh, thank you for that, sis, because that, that was a good answer. Who, who has the mic? Do you have the mic? You got to get it on. You kind of talked about where I am, and I don't know exactly what to say to my loved one who, who's in this hopelessness, who feels despair, whom I was talking to just before coming here, and I've been encouraging them to call on Christ like Peter did. Help, Lord. I said, you don't have to be, you know, sophisticated, just talk to him, be real about where you are. And I keep sharing with her the promises of God. And I realized when you were talking, maybe intellectually she understands it, but maybe isn't rejoicing in those promises. She's... um, She can't rejoice. Yeah. She can't rejoice. You're not going to always be rejoicing unless you're hallucinating. So one of the things we want to be able to do is, and I, I promise you, I won't have you here all night, but, but I really do want Christians to be able to think well. Don't oversell Bible passages because to oversell them is actually to misinterpret them. Like the Bible will say, rejoice always. And again, I say what? Rejoice. Didn't the Bible tell you to rejoice in everything? Right. And then immediately you are thinking that there should never be a time where the believer is not rejoicing. And that would be contrary to the scriptures, because all you did was lift up that verse and say what it said, not what it mean and not how it applied in the context and how in other scenarios, when people are in states of mourning or in states of grieving, uh, grieving or in states of being burdened, where they cannot hold at, at, at both times joy and grieving and joy and bur- burden. Now they have an added burden because they feel like they're sinning because of the way you applied that verse to their situation. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Things like that is what I've, you know, shared with her, that I'll work everything uh, together for your good. Things like that, that even though you're going through something difficult, God is sovereign. He's in control, right? Even when those bad things are happening or what she feels is bad. I guess I'm perplexed. In in my mind, perplexed means not having an answer. That's maybe? that's true too. Question. No, 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 there's no doubt about it. When perplexity is always a matter of a thing being so complex that you're not able to categorize it and organize it in a way of understanding these the particulars of that complex system. Again, it's like it's like a puzzle piece. You can take puzzle pieces apart, but not necessarily put them back together. I'm perplexed. Does that make sense? Of course. Of course. In, in Sherry's situation with a loved one that is despairing, I might ask a few questions before I respond to her 
uh, from where she is and then show you the distinction between that and the man in the cage. I don't know if you know, uh, uh, I don't know if any of us in the room know that situation. Remember what I said in the opening discourse? Don't say you know it if you don't. Don't say you're there if you're not. The man in the cage is a unique situation. Remind me to explain that in a moment. But what Sherry was saying was that she's talking to a loved one that's despairing and she's quoting scripture and the Bible to them, which could be a divine intervention. Remember, we need the Lord to intervene, do we not? But frequently, how is he going to do it? Through the people of God. We are the mouthpiece of God. I am happy to do it. You and I are happy, right? You and I are to help the cast down shoulders, the weak and feeble knees, the feet turned out of the way. That's what we do, right? Bear one another burden, one another's burdens. That is Galatians 6 1, right? If you see a man in a fall, you who are spiritual, go to him and help him. That is being our brother's keeper. That makes sense, right? Y'all got that? Stay with me. That makes sense. If you're equipped. If you're not equipped, just pray. Because you got to know how, you got to be equipped. Remember Job's three friends are coming to him and that man is sinking and then they're saying all kind of crazy, stupid stuff using all kind of Bible verses. And he said, hey, 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 stop. That's enough. I can tell you have no idea what I'm going through by the misapplication of all those Bible verses. He called them miserable comforters. Now, you guys are called to be comforters, but but not miserable ones. So quit all that Bible quoting. Especially if you don't know what you're talking about. And quote the Bible when you really care. Not to make yourself feel good that you know the Bible. Am I making some sense? Don't just quote Bible verses because you know the Bible says don't do that if you don't know whether or not that passage applies to that situation. And if it's helpful. You and I are called to be helpful. Would you agree with that? Okay, so with, with Sherry's situation, the reason why Sherry is feeling that way is because Sherry wasn't able to go into that situation with a sense of understanding the potential of that perplexing uh, circumstance rubbing off on her because she was not prepared for not being able to obviously help. Did you understand what I just stated there? Let me say it again. It's really important. A lot of times we will take the assignment to help a person in a perplexing situation. But we're going in there thinking we can fix it. Stay with me. And you're not prepared for failure at solving the problem. And then when you go away, you feel um, futile and impotent. And in some cases, you might feel like you even made it worse. Am I making some sense to you guys? And that's because... The goal cannot be when you and I are making intervention that somehow we win the battle. Right. And we would have to know the assignment. Jesus came off the mountaintop with Peter, James and John. This is Luke's gospel, chapter nine. 
Soon as they came off the mountaintop, three, four days of glorious manifestation of the fullness of Jesus and his glory. They get down at the bottom and then a man brings his child filled with the devil to have the disciples to cast him out and they couldn't do it. And then everybody says, your disciples could not heal my son. And the disciples are tripping. They just came from the greatest conference that they could have. Greatest Bible conference they ever, they, they was glowing with Jesus. But they were impotent to help that child. Did y'all get that? And so when they brought the child to Jesus, he said to them, the problem here is definitely faith. And it's not that you don't have it is where I'm going to actually add to my sister's comment, because it's always dangerous to just toss a word up. Right. This is what we call the one word fallacy, the one word fallacy. What do you mean by that, Pastor? The one word fallacy is just like and, and this is these are incantations. And when you just, just have faith, just have faith, just trust God. OK, OK. Can I get something else? You know, you just gave me two slices of bread. Ain't no meat in it. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Can I go on? Right. So faith. Faith is an organic thing. That is broad in its application. And it's diverse in its capacity to address each situation differently so that when you tell me to have faith, you are really saying to me in a situation where the remedy is patience, you're simply telling me to have patience. In in another situation, it may require me to be steadfast and faith is also steadfast. So you're just telling me to be steadfast. You're telling me to hold my ground, but you didn't say it clearly because you just used that generic term faith. Am I making some sense? Right. So in another situation, you might be telling me to actually move forward in addressing that situation. Be assertive, have faith. But now I know what that faith looks like in terms of an application to the situation. Now, you're going to actually explain having faith if you know the situation well enough to say you probably want to move on this. This is time sensitive as well. You want to get out of the eye of the target. A lot of times when we're fighting battles, the one thing you want to do is get out of the eye of the target. If they got their scope on you, first thing you do is move. Get out of the eye of the target. Right. There are a lot of ways in which we can explain faith at the applicational level when you know how how to do it. So our sister was struggling because she wasn't prepared for her failure. The disciples struggled because they thought coming off the mountaintop, they automatically had enough Holy Ghost to heal that boy. Jesus says this one does not come out by just saying in Jesus name. This one requires fasting and praying and lengthy counsel and lengthy care and lengthy concern. This one might be a year or two or three or five or 10 down the line. Do you think you have the capacity to take that assignment that long? If you don't, you're not the one. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? I'm just trying to help you guys understand that the Christian has to think much more deeply about the walk of faith than we do, particularly in difficult trials. Way too many Christians are paper soldiers. They go to boot camp, they get the uniform, they, they, they get to wear it all nice and neat and everything. Haven't been in a battle in their life. But they're ready to, to quote scripture. I'm making some sense, am I not? 
Right. And, 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 and so a lot of Christians knowing that it requires a lot more than they know to be prepared to really help people don't even want to get prepared to help people because you've got to be prepared. And by the way, um, God will simultaneously use you while preparing you. But you got to know that, too. And if he's simultaneously using you while preparing you, you have to be ready to make a thousand mistakes. You have to be ready for failure. If you and I cannot embrace failure in our own life, we cannot help people overcome their own failures. I'm making some sense, am I not? Right. Because the wonderful side of the gospel that people don't know is that God is a God of second, third, fourth, fifth, 10th, 12, 15, 20 times because failure is simply part of the process of growing people up. Any uh, any other mics back there? Who who back there? Uh, Jenny, Jenny, I'm doing ladies first. Jenny, Jenny, pass that. Letitia, oh, she got a mic. Okay, go on, sis. And then I'll get you, Glenda. Um, We only got a few more minutes and then we'll get out of here, you guys. So that's part of what I wanted to say is sometimes I don't get on the mic because I'm still marinating on what you're saying. And it's that's why 90 percent of people don't. It's deep. They're just working it through, which is cool. And then it's hard to find the avenue that I want to go down um, in the moment. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot I could say. Um, But I was thinking more about like answering the question of what Second Corinthians 4 was saying, in a sense. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. why we're not in despair if we're perplexed. Yeah. And one thing that's, well, there's a couple things that are really standing out is the, well, it ties in with the Pilgrim Progress part of the oil, right, of Holy Spirit. This there, having myself been through some, some dark trials, and no, not knowing how I was going to get through it and not even being able to verbalize the need to others, I know there was something within me because I had been, like you said, prepared. Yeah. I had the word hidden in my heart that I might not sin against him. That, that was coming to me. The words would come to me um, when I couldn't open the Bible. It'd be sitting right there, just right there. I couldn't get it. There was something holding me back, but there was something holding me up. And that's what I feel like this is Paul encouraging the saints, us, and the persecuted ones then and the persecuted ones now. Right. And the work is going to get done by broken vessels that need to continuously be filled. So that's what's coming through for me right now amongst a bunch of other stuff that I'm going to be <laughs> marinating on. Preach, girl. Preach. Did she just preach? Yeah. Right. And, and uh, of course, that's one of my babies going way, way back. She go way, way back. She looked like she 19, but she 21. She's a therapist, too, so she, she, could, she could rattle off some stuff. Um, what she said is true. The difference between the man in the cage and the man out of the cage is the wall of faith. I talked to you guys about that. You don't see it, particularly when you're really struggling, that God is pouring oil on the fire to keep it from going out, right? Even though it may go dim, it doesn't go out. And there may be some of you in here that are dealing with extremely low, dim 
embers of faith. And you might want to attach yourself to this cat for whom the fire went out. He said it, didn't he? See, this is where you and I were in the courtroom with him on the stand and Christian was the, he was the, he was the uh, inquisitor. He raised the eight interrogative questions, did he not? And he, that man gave us a clear testimony of what it means to walk away from God, what it means to grieve the Holy Ghost, what it means for God to depart, what it means for the devil to come in and what it means for his heart to be so hardened that he can't repent. Didn't y'all read that with me? That's not the person in the situation where the devil is pouring water on the fire and the Lord Jesus is pouring the spirit of God on the fire on the backside of the wall. Now, that man in the wall of faith account, the man in the wall of faith account or the woman, if they were to open their mouth, they would say, I don't know what's going on. All I know is I am not hopeless. That makes sense, right? This is why I told you they connect. Those, those frames connect. If you look at them, they connect. The, the mystery of God keeping us in the midst of troubles is inexplicable, particularly when you're going through it. Job was that way. Job was the man of faith on the wall, is he not? Because, I mean, he, he, Job couldn't see hardly anything at times. Sounded like an unbeliever, and yet he prevailed, didn't he? All right, two more questions. We are very good. A female? Okay, Glenda. It's not a question for me, but I just wanted to share. Um, I, work in the, I work as a receptionist in the oncology department at, at um, hospital, and uh, I've been in situations of despair where I could not say anything. And then I've been in situations where I don't even know where, what I said came from um, in my spirit, I think that, but then I know it's from the Lord because the persons got something from it. And uh, I remember one situation, uh, I was standing at my desk and this lady, I could hear her from the back screaming and crying and saying things and then she came out the door and said, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die. And I was praying before she came from the back door and she came and got to the elevator. We had a full room of people and new people too. And she, I remember, I don't know how I walked from my desk to the elevator and grabbed this lady by her shoulders and shook her and said, everybody's gonna die. <laughs> and, um, and I must have said some other things to her. And then the elevator opened right in time. And I went back to my desk saying to the patients, I'm gonna get fired. <laughs> and uh, a week later, that lady came back and I didn't even recognize her. And she's not dead, she's fine. And I just believe that God worked through me so many other times before, but especially, that's my favorite one. <laughs> Cause I really thought I was gonna get fired. <laughs> Okay, let me help redeem. Let me help redeem Glenda. You can cut that off. I mean, let me let me help redeem her. It's a good story. I want to redeem it because it has to be redeemed. Uh, you could have got fired for that. Yeah, you could have. Right, you could have got fired for a statement like that being both religious and harmful. 
because it could have come off careless. You guys hear me? It could have happened. Let me, let me just share the mystery of the outcome that only could have came later. And I say this so that you guys don't go do what she did. Now, Glenda will talk about many other stories where she shared the Bible, prayed with people, et cetera, et cetera. That probably would have been a better story for this group. Um, God can take what we say and use it. But what we would want to do is go, Lord, is there any theological um, basis for which that statement could be defended if I had to give an answer in court for that proposition. So this is what happens to the Christians in the first century. The Christians in the first century make statements and then they end up before the courts, before Pilate's court, before the Roman courts. And you know what they have to do? They have to give an answer to those statements. It's called an apologetic. Now, you're going to go to prison if you don't adequately answer why you said what you said. Are you guys keeping up with me? Right. And so when the Bible says be ready to give an answer, an apologetic to your hope, then you have to be ready to go. That statement that I made was not just a kind of uh, provocative, explosive, sort of urgent statement of reality. Woman, don't you know we're all going to die? That cannot be the best example of Christian care. You guys understand what I just stated? Um, As true as it may be, as true as it may be, uh, we don't know if that lady didn't go out and somebody else give her a better explanation. So by the time that she came back, she was recovered from her hysteria of getting the news that she has cancer. We don't know that. You see what I mean by having to think things through, drill down and read into it? Um, we, we don't know that. It would have been great. I was waiting for Glenda to go. She came back. She thanked me. And it became evident that I, I realized that I was just, you know, being over, overly dramatic about my. You didn't tell us that. So so what I'm doing, that's what I'm doing. That's why this is why I'm trying to cover her because. Right. Huh? She did say that she came. No, she came back to the war. She didn't say that she came back to her. And, right. But you didn't say that to us. And that, but you had the you had the mic. So what I'm saying is I would have wanted to hear that. And then I wouldn't have even said this for the most part, other than I would recommend that if you're going to say something so direct like that, you want to be able to have a scriptural defense for it and then also be able to justify it as being a mechanism for care. But you didn't say that. You just said she came back the next week. Right. So that's, that's good. We don't have to cut the mic back on. No, I, I, I'm not. And I'm talking to him. I got you, Glenda. But you see what happened when you shared the mic with that short little terse statement. It went out into the ether short of the final conversation in other words of care. That makes sense now. You guys see that? That makes sense. Does it also follow, ladies and gentlemen, that 
you can say something the first time in an intervention or a dialogue with somebody that you feel you recognize I could have did a better job. Then God gives you the opportunity and you can fill that out, flesh that out. So there you go. Redeeming that, because otherwise I'm thinking about brothers and sisters in the room right now dealing with stressful situations who would not have been able to take the way you said that and imply that. Am I making some sense to you? Okay, good. Uh, So in the future, when you open up the mic and share with us, make sure that it's coherent enough to cover the whole thing. That way I don't have to do it. Hmm? Absolutely. No, because we remember we're we're ladies and gentlemen. We're in class. We're all learning. I, I love the fact that she cared enough to get up and go jar the lady. See what I'm saying? Because we are our brother's keeper. Way too many of us sit on the sideline and don't do anything. I'm making some sense. All right, we're getting ready to shut it down. Go ahead on, James. What's your observation? Thank you for that, Glenda. You got to. Yeah, you, you know, as I sit here and I try to put it together and listen to everything that you've, you know, presented us with and then try to apply it, it's easy to see how it's misapplied because we're talking about faith. And the only way that faith grows is by hearing the word of God, and that's the scripture. And, and, and I mean, that's, that's the word of God. And absent that, it's amazing we don't struggle even more with faith. We're just now beginning to learn what faith is and how it applies, where in that distant space where we don't know what to do or we're not sure what's going on, we still have hope. I mean, we have faith, even though we don't have the conclusion. We don't have the final conclusion. Yeah. But we still believe God. If we've been trained or taught enough, you know, but I guess the question would be, see, what if you haven't been trained, if you haven't been taught enough, what if we've gone to church for 20 years and none of that's ever been addressed? Yeah. And then when the, when the trial comes, you know, we're acting like we've never... We're not really acting. That's where really where we are. I, I mean, that's I mean that, that's a hard that's a hard statement. I don't know. And a lot of times you're around people, there is no miraculous word. I mean, God's word is a miracle. I don't, I don't want to misstate that. But for us to apply it, a lot of times when I'm with people, it's just about being silent. Yes. Just j- just yes. being quiet. Yeah. And and there's nothing wrong with being quiet. I mean, some people. I mean, that's kind of hard for maybe some to understand, but it's a lot of times it's not saying anything. What I've learned is allowing them to work through their situation. Uh, let, let them, they don't even have to ask any questions, just let them, and they'll eventually start to talk, and, and they're both, here's that, that grieving and, what's the other term, rejoicing at the same time, because you can go from tears of joy to t- tears of sorrow. That's that's real when you when when they think about what's taking place. I'm talking about in the time of death or in anything. Yeah, you know, you know, yeah. I've learned that, and you know, and then I can identify with the scripture. We rejoice with those we weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, and that can all be <laughs> in in a moment's time. I uh, agree. When uh, someone's going uh, through something, and you know, obviously, what I've learned is with this pilgrim's progress, it's just so. Like I said, I'd never gone through it until now. And I'm the same age as you, and I'm like, wow. You know, this is just, just going through it the way, having time to just break it down. A pilgrim's progress is, yeah. is a process. It's not, 
an instantaneous journey. It's something that has to be worked out. Yep. We, we have to take our time. It's the day we get all these days, and we have to learn how to apply it daily. That's what I'm trying to do. How do you apply this thing to a, to a daily walk? We come, we see, uh, uh, I call them, I'm calling them pilgrim, going through all types of scenarios that we can, that we can learn from. And I think, truth be told, we've all experienced it in, in, in some way around. It's just profound to be able to have this at a time, to be going through this course at, at a time such as this, that we may be able to help someone, if nothing else, to help ourselves, that we can become even more equipped. And so it's just, like I'm going, I'm going somewhere with my nephew, I want to share that with you, but not now, but it's, it's, it's interesting, and, and it's real. And so, got, it. got it. So I'm going to close this way. I'm going to go down. Um, there are two words that you brought up tonight, perplexed and love. I want to try to take a crack at those, and I want to hear... Um, a correction or whatever you got for me on this, but perplexed, um, thoroughly confused or, or in the middle of confusion. And then love, preference through action. So preferring through action. So that's it. Okay. The first one was a fairly good definition that we can get our teeth around. The second one was woefully deficient of evidence. This is called the, the tyranny of data uh, in science when it comes to proving a point. Love is way too profound and, and complex of a subject to reduce it to that kind of terse statement. It was, it was a whole lot more to Agape and Hesed. Um, is right. Definitely the orientation of, of preference. Love when properly understood, gives. Love, when properly understood, gives. When you know that you are operating from agape, you have the resources to give. So it's rooted in preference, but application has to be right for it to be biblical as well. We can talk about more of that, more about, more about that later. Um, I'm gonna close with this thought around why we do what we do, because we, we started the Pilgrim's Progress in January, didn't we? We're just two months in. And, you know, we got a ways to go, don't we? Uh, imagine, though, if we give ourselves to the study, um, probably not, not a question. We'll, do, we'll take you next time, because we got new people here. I know I'm wearying them with the time. Um, I'm saying to myself in agreement with James, if we stay in the study and make our way out of the interpreter's house, up to the hill, past the cross, and down the hill, and follow Pilgrim all the way through all of the other twists and turns to the celestial city, which would take us to the end of the year, how much more understanding and clarity we would have in our walk if we could make it there? you understand what I just stated? How much better we will be at the end of the year to engage in these kind of studies. Because one of the things that you learn as a child of God is that what you are today, you will not be a year from now. You will be further down the line. There will be more understanding. There will be more clarity. The life of the child of God is going forward, not backwards. 
And so this is all an experience for all of us. A lot of you guys are going to be better Bible students and better carers of men and women's souls at the end of this journey. I promise you. The thing I want you to note before we pick up on Tuesday with the man in the cage. Unlike all the other experiences we've been talking about, people helping and going here and doing that with folks. He's in a cage. No one can help him. He's in a solitary state without the ability to be helped. Do you understand that? That's the condition of the person that is in a reprobation of conscience. Nobody can get to him. Nobody can get to him. I don't know what that state is. You don't know what that state is. We all got family. We all got loved ones. We are a community of of believers. We encourage one another. We pull each other up. We we help bear one another's burdens, don't we? We actually engage in ministry, caring for other people. So we're not in a cage. Big difference. Now join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the students that came out tonight. Help us to learn more about how to make sure that we don't drift so far away from you that we end up in a state of despair. And concerning the people we've heard tonight who have been in trouble or maybe even among us in such troubles, we would ask, Lord, that you would keep them from being caged. Um, even though they may be distressed, even though they may be perplexed, even though they may be burdened and troubled. Lord, you are the one who is able to undo burdens. You are the one who is able to clear up perplexities and conundrums and make them make sense to us. You are the one who is able to bring us up out of the sinking sand and the sinking seas. As you have said, call upon me in the day of trouble. We hear you, Lord. You said, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will hear you and deliver you and we will we will glorify you for it. And we know that's possible. And so we're asking in all these cases that you do just that. It's raining outside, Lord. So I'm asking for traveling mercies for everybody in the house. Wherever we're going, give us traveling mercies. And help these things to sink deep down into our soul. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen.